Amen. All right. You guys having fun yet? That was fun. Okay. Well, now we'll have some fun with Scripture, with the book of John. Uh, as you're aware, we've been, we've been working through the book of John for uh, a while now. We're in John chapter 17. If you want to follow along, you can feel free to open your Bibles and follow along. You can follow along with your notes. Uh, we'll also put the scriptures up on the screen so you can just sit there and look forward, whatever works for you. Uh, but before I get into, we're going to be looking at the middle section of John 17, where Jesus, all of John 17 is Jesus praying. Uh, and specifically in this section, he's praying for his disciples. But what I want to do first is remind you kind of a big picture overview so that we understand this better. So remember, uh, when we started this, I said that John 14 through 17, uh, and that and possibly the Sermon on the Mount are the two uh, most important passages in all of Scripture because they're the places we hear Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount obviously is just a sermon by Jesus. They don't get any better than that. And that's three chapters of, of good stuff uh, and hard-to-do stuff. And then this is in John 13, we have the Last Supper, and uh, we're coming up on the cross uh, beginning in John 18. So 14 through 17, really the end of 13 through 17, is Jesus' final instruction to his disciples before he goes to the cross, and then in John 17, his final prayer before he goes to the cross, right? So uh, this is really important stuff. The reason I wanted to remind you of that is what happens here in this section, in, uh, as I was studying it and, and uh, you know, coming up with one I wanted to talk about, I started going through it and I realized that in this prayer for his disciples, it's kind of a review by prayer. He hits almost every key concept that we've talked about in John, the end of John 13 through John 16. He, uh, he touches on almost every one. So I went, well, this is perfect. This is just Jesus doing a review in prayer. So that's what I'll do. So we'll be doing a review this morning. And, uh, but the reason that's important, and, and in your notes, uh, the bold type is the, the key concepts that we're hitting, that we've already hit uh, in 14 through 16, but that we're hitting again through prayer. And I want to do this as a review because it's good to see them all together. And it's good to note that these are basically the really important things to know. These are the key concepts that Jesus felt like it was important to arm his disciples with before he left right? So here we go. So let's start uh, on verse 6. We're going to go uh, verses 6 through 19 today. So I'm going to start with verse 6 through 8. Jesus says, now remember, he's, he's talking to the Father, but, and I don't recommend this kind of prayer unless you're Jesus. Um, he's, he's talking to the Father, but he's also saying things for the benefit of those around him. Uh, Jesus is good enough to do that. He can pray to the Father and kind of throw something in there for everyone who's listening. We aren't as good at that. So when we pray, we should just pray to the Father and not try and speak to the people around us as well. Uh, just saying that because, you know, uh, you know. Anyway, that's what he's doing. So uh, in verse 6 through 8, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And so he's basically telling God, uh, these disciples you gave me, they did it right. They did the things they needed to do, and so I'm going to pray for them now. Okay, now let's review that. The first thing he says is, Jesus, uh, I have manifested your name to these men. Uh, first point, Jesus manifested the Father. Jesus made the Father known. What you need to understand, uh, the Greek word there doesn't just mean I told them your secret name and now they have the password. Uh, it means 
his name, his authority, his character, his reputation. Jesus is the express representation of the Father. He's saying, I manifested everything you are in the earth before these men, right? And so Jesus manifested the Father. And this is, once again, a review of what we saw in John 14, where Jesus said, which is interesting because we were singing it in morning prayer, uh, Jesus says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Uh, which was an answer to one of the disciples' questions. So he's telling them, I am identical to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, uh, we saw in John 1 that Jesus is the only begotten Son. He's the only Son of God. He's the only one who can claim to actually fully, completely represent the Father. He manifests his character, his reputation. If you've seen me, if you've watched what I've done, if you've heard how I speak, if you've seen how I respond, if you've seen the way I love people, you've seen the Father, right? And so Jesus fully manifested himself. And in fact, he goes on in John 14 to say, uh, the reason is I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, they indwell each other. Now, this is super important because, uh, as I'm going to review in a minute, we're talking a lot about the dwelling place in John 14, 15, and 16, about uh, our ability to dwell with Him, with God, which is an amazing concept, right? So they indwell each other, and he says in John 14 that this is actually where the works come from. The works aren't just because I'm the Son of God. The works are because the Father dwells in me which is encouraging for us because that's the only way we can do the works, right? Not because we're Christians, not because the Bible says we can, but because God indwells us by His Spirit. Amen? And so uh, he says first in, in verse 6 that Jesus man manifested the Father to His disciples, and then he goes on and he talks about uh, they who were yours, you gave to me, they have kept your word. And we, we covered this concept just last time in John 17, part 1, that the Father gives men to Jesus. Uh, we saw that in John 17, 2. Now, I, I covered that real thoroughly. It was only a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go back over it. Uh, but uh, when he says he gives men to Jesus, it doesn't mean he's just picking some that get to go to heaven and some that get to go to hell. He's not just picking random people to give to Jesus. It is our response that determines that. In other words, he gives men to Jesus because they receive or keep his word. This is an important concept for us to get uh, because the church has muddled this sometimes. We are given to Jesus because we respond when his word is delivered to us. We receive it. That's how we get given to Jesus. And he says that here in verse 7 or verse 6, I'm sorry, uh, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So they go together. If we didn't keep the word, they wouldn't have been given to him, right? And we'll see that later uh, as we go on. Um, and so it reminds us of a point that he made a lot, uh, actually in, in 14 and 15, that obedience, keeping his word, is the evidence of our love for God. Remember John 14, 15, if you love me, You'll, be, you'll keep my commandments. That's right. It's the evidence that we love God, our obedience. Uh, it's that we, uh, when his word comes, we receive it and we want to do it. We're not blowing it off. And so uh, John 14, 15, if you love me, uh, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, verse 23, uh, we saw, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's who loves me and I'll love him and my father will manifest myself to him or himself to him, right? And so we saw that in several places um, that it, in John 15, we saw that uh, keeping his commandments or obeying him was a key to abiding in him. And so that principle is repeated here. Um, they have kept your word. Obedience is the evidence that we love him. So in other words, these guys that you gave me, they love you. They kept your word. Amen. Amen? And hopefully he's saying that of all of us too. They love you. They're keeping your word. All right. So, he goes on, and he says in verse 7, uh, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. All right? And uh, 
this reminds me of what we saw in John 16, where he says, basically, everything the Father has is mine. So it's the same concept. But here's what I want you to get. Because we're talking a lot about uh, the indwelling or the dwelling place, about the Father dwells in Jesus, Jesus dwells in the Father. This is a statement of absolute unity that is honestly probably impossible for us to fully comprehend this side of heaven, how God operates in this kind of unity. Uh, it is absolute unity. There is no disunity. There is not a hint of disunity. It is, it is God saying um, everything, they, they recognize basically the unity we, we want them to see, that everything I have is yours, everything you have is mine. Uh, I don't know if you remember um, when uh, I talked about the Shema. Anybody remember that? Two. Perfect. All right, we should <laughs> possibly do that again. The point is, they are so unified that they refer to themselves as one in every aspect. And so we go back to the Shema. Uh, it's basically the Our Father of the Old Testament, behold, the Lord our God, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Now, I'm not going to reteach the whole thing, but the gist of it was this. When he says the Lord is one, it's not numerical. It's not saying the, because he, he keeps referring to himself as we in Genesis. He knows there's more than just one, right? It's saying we're in this incredible unity, and it's a love-based unity. It could be, uh, it wouldn't be doing it injustice to say, Hero Israel, the Lord dwells in incredible unity and love. And that's why the second statement, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, is basically saying, we dwell in love and you should join us. Amen. That's it. That's the Shema. And so we need to see this key concept that, uh, that the Lord is one. Because it's a model for us. Because as we keep reading in this prayer, we're going to find out that what he wants is for us to be one in this way. Right? Now imagine that. Imagine that just in this room. Being in absolute unity. No disunity. Anybody think you can pull that off? Just in your family. Can you pull that off? And yet God does in his family. And calls us to that. So this is why this is such an important principle. And so we see um, in verse 7, uh, all that the Father has belongs to Jesus. And of course, we read in John chapter 5 that Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. You get an idea of how their unity works. Well, here, Jesus, everything I have is yours. Well, that's fine, but I'm only going to do what I see you do. Okay. And so they just work together seamlessly and flawlessly. And that's the future he has for us. And that's what he wants to make his church in. And as we keep reading this prayer, we're going to see that Jesus prays that. And somehow, I believe the Father will answer this prayer. And somehow the church will express that incredible unity. Isn't that amazing to think about? We are so not close to there yet, are we? Okay. Well, we have our work cut out for us. Verse 8. Um, They've received the words, and they've known that you sent me. Now, I love this because this, several times in these passages, we've just seen the gospel, and this is another time. Uh, this is eternal life. Let me just say it this clearly. Uh, this is a great place for you to see this. Uh, the eternal life that God offers through his son Jesus dying on the cross in our place, his blood being shed for our sins, requires two and only two responses. And if you do these two things, you will have eternal life. He will do all the rest. He does all the hard work. Are you ready? And they're both right here. And we've seen them again several times. The first one, and he says them, they have kept your word and they believe that you sent me. That's it. So the first, uh, believe in the Father and his sent one. Now we just saw this in John 17, 3. Remember? Uh, this is eternal life, that they believe in you and the one in whom you've sent. Right? Hallelujah. One, believe in the Father and His Son, Jesus, Amen. eternal life. Two, receive 
or obey the Father's word from Jesus. That's verse 8. They've kept your word. They've believed you sent me. That's all we ought to do. You guys understand that. It's important that we understand that. This is the gospel. Or this is actually, this is the response to the gospel. This is our response. Our response is, God says, you got to do two things. you got to believe I'm who I am, and you got to do what I say. That's it. I'll do the rest. Amen. Amen? And so we believe in the Father and the Sent One, and we obey the words of the Father that have come through Jesus. And uh, I do want to show you, it's important that we see that the words uh, of Jesus are from the Father. Uh, he makes this very clear, and he makes this very clear that this is a salvation issue, that we receive not just him, but his words. It's not enough to go, I believe in God, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and now I'm going to do what I want. There's the second one. We have to receive his word. Amen? Okay. So, uh, we'll go back a little bit further to John 12, and I put these in your notes so you can read them. John 12, verses 48 and 49 says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words, there's those two conditions, uh, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. In other words, these aren't my words. These are Dad's words. You got a problem, take it up with Dad, which is not going to go well. John 14, 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. It's just the opposite of John 14, 15, isn't it? He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again, it's important that we understand that when we pick up the Bible and go, well, I don't really believe that part, that it's God's word. It's not men. Or I don't really believe where that pastor said I have to do that. Well, that's fine. Don't if you don't want to. But God said you have to do that. You're disagreeing with the creator of the universe. I am not sure that's wise. This is why I always try and put things between people and God instead of people and me, because they need to know uh, it's between them and God, not them and me. This is what that looks like. I've talked about that before. Someone says, Pastor, are you saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And I go, no, I am not saying that. I would never say that. I'm saying Jesus said that. <laughs> Don't argue with me. Argue with him which is where the argument needs to be, right? Pastor, are you saying this is wrong? No, I, I'm not going to tell you what's wrong. I'm saying Jesus said that that's wrong, and people that do that go to hell. Do what you want. It's between you and Jesus. No skin off my back, right? You understand what I'm saying. It's important that we understand for ourselves and for others that it's God's words, not our words. And... Uh, Again, probably never wise to argue with God about what he said. Uh, you have liberty to believe whatever you want where he hasn't expressed his opinion. But where he has expressed his opinion, if you disagree with it, that's rebellion. <laughs> right? Okay. All right. So, going on, verses 9 and 10. Then he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus wants to be very clear that the Father understands, I'm just praying for these guys. I don't want any of this good stuff going off onto the people that I'm not praying for, right? So, no. Uh, he's making a distinction, again, as a review that we talked about. We saw this in John 14 uh, regarding peace. Uh, peace I leave you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. He keeps drawing this contrast between the world and his kingdom. That uh, my peace is internal and supernatural. The world's peace requires that you go along with the world, and it's circumstantial. And so he's going different peace. In John 15, we see him saying, uh, 
if you obey my word, the world's going to hate you. It hates me. It's going to hate you for loving me. Right? Draws that contrast between the world and God. In 16, he says, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Every chapter we've looked at in those last three, he contrasts the world and his kingdom. And, and so we need, again, we need to understand that this is uh, a, a black and white contrast. It isn't a scale of, now there's a scale of how far maybe we're in the world and in, in him, but in terms of affection, the verses on that are very clear. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, right? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You got to pick a side. And so our affection can't be in both. It just can't. And he's not talking about the people of the world. God loves the people of the world, and he demands that we love them also. He's talking about uh, the uh, principles of the world and the spirit of the world and all that good stuff, right? And so we have to understand uh, this contrast. It's so important that Jesus reminds the Father. Now, remember, I'm just praying for the disciples. I'm not praying for the world because this stuff doesn't count for them. We're going to divide them up later into those who received my word and those who didn't, right? Okay. And then in verse 10, it's really pretty straightforward. It's just going back to this unity thing, but it's very clear. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That, that Jesus and the Father exercise shared ownership and shared glory. Uh, the Father owns everything. Jesus owns everything. Uh, it says in Revelation that you inherit all things. Because uh, so when you get in the family, you own everything too. And uh, when you glorify Jesus, it glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. It just, it's just, we all just share. Because there's a lot of it. Amen? All right. Now, getting interesting. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Now I am no longer in the world... Because he actually is. He's just, you know, he's thinking ahead. He's going soon. Um, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. That is a mind-blowing statement if you stop and think about that. The whole unity of God thing, they're so close that we're one. And Jesus has clearly expressed desire here is that the disciples would experience that oneness. Isn't that wild? That should blow our minds. That should make us, you know, that should, yeah, that should stir us forward. So, uh, first, it's clear that Jesus is returning to the Father, but the disciples are not there to be, there to remain here in the earth. We, we talked about in John 13 is Jesus is handing off the job of being witnesses in the earth to the disciples because he's going back to the Father. And so they remain in the earth, but they need to be kept up. And we're going to see just a couple verses later. Up until this time, Jesus has kept them, has protected them. But they need to be kept. And he says, keep them through your name. And again, his name doesn't just mean the magic word. If you say in the name of Jesus, nothing bad will happen. It means the authority uh, the, the character, all those things come under his name. It means, and this is the thing we want to remember, this is the review part, it means uh, they can use your name, Father, because they're now in your family after I go to the cross. Because I'm making a way for them to be in the family. It means it is a reminder of what he talked about, uh, again, several places, that we are being adopted into the Trinitarian family. Again, let that sink in. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have dwelt in unfathomable unity for eternity. And suddenly, Jesus has made a way for us to be in that family, for us to enter into the Godhead, to be accepted in the Beloved. Again, this is stuff that should blow our minds. This is stuff that we should ponder and go, wow, what, uh, what's that look like in my life? That now I'm now in the family of God. I have the authority to use his name as dad. Amen? 
So we've been adopted into the Trinitarian family. Uh, John 14, 18, he says, I will no longer leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he's curing that orphan. We're on our own here in the world, uh, in this fallen world thing. Romans 8, 14, we went to that and made it really clear in Romans 8 that we when we receive the Holy Spirit, it says we receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, right? And of course, in John 16, by way of review, uh, he tells us that no longer will you have to ask things in my name. You can ask the Father directly, and he'll answer you. Why? Because you're in the family now. Well, they would be as soon as he went to the cross. So you understand uh, and that's why it's in bold. We have to understand that we've been ad adopted into the Trinitarian family. We are quite literally part of the Godhead. We are not God. Uh, don't put that on YouTube. We are made part of the Godhead in the sense that uh, the entire Godhead is open to us because we have been adopted into the family. Amen? Okay. Now, what I want to really uh, lean into, though, is the purpose of this right at the end of verse 12, where he says, uh, da -da 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 -da. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, there it is. No, end of verse 11. Oh, yeah, end of verse 11, I'm sorry. That they may be one as we are one, Right? So that's the reason that we've been brought into the Godhead. We have been adopted into the Trinitarian family so that we can experience Trinitarian unity. Again, I just hardly know what to do with that. What, can you imagine what a church looks like that's actually experiencing the kind of unity that the Trinity experiences and experiencing it with the Trinity? That's what we've been called into. That's what Jesus is praying. He's going, I'm praying that this would happen. Uh, I keep losing the passage. Um, that they may be one as we are one. We're going to hit this really big at the end of John chapter 17 also. Right? And so I want to remind you about what Jesus was really doing here in this Trinitarian opportunity uh, to, to come in. Uh, we saw this in John 14, 2. Jesus said, uh, don't be afraid. I'm going to make a place for you in the Father. There's a lot of dwelling places in my Father. I'm going to the cross to make a place for you to dwell in the Father. And then in verse 23 of the same chapter, he says, if anyone has my commandments and keeps them, my Father will love him and we will come and make a dwelling place in him. You guys remember we covered this. This is huge. God made a dwelling place for us in the Father. God made a dwelling place in us for Him and the Father. And then in John 15, verse 4, He says, Abide in me and I in you. In other words, I made a dwelling place in the Father for you. I made a dwelling place in you for us. I need you to abide in those two dwelling places. Abide in me and I in you. Keep me in your dwelling place, you stay in my dwelling place. In the Trinity, in the Godhead, this has awesome implications that I, I, I'm pretty sure I have not fully realized, right? And so these are things worth meditating on, that he's done this so that we would experience uh, Trinitarian unity. And then he gives us his motive in verse 13, which is, did I read verse 12? Yeah, uh, while I was in the world, I kept them. Uh, those who you gave me, I've kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That, of course, is Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then in verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, which is exactly what he said in John 5, 11. These things I've written to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, right? In other words, I'm telling you all this so that you will have joy even in the midst of a hostile world, 
even in the midst of a world that hates you. I'm telling you this so you'll have joy independent of your circumstances because of your dwelling place in the kingdom that supersedes your circumstances. Amen? And we talked about uh, that this is actually our witness, that the fruit of the Spirit, the ability to express love and joy and peace in the midst of trials and sufferings and persecution is our witness in the earth that God is in us and that His kingdom is in us. Amen? All right. This is a good review, isn't it? You guys remember hitting all these things? In as we've Okay, I was hoping they would sound at least vaguely familiar. Verse 14. I like this part. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I gave them your, world, your word. Uh, they received your word, and it made the world angry. The world hates them because they love you. You remember us talking about this in that contrast. Now, again, we're not talking about all the people in the world. We're talking about the world systems. But a lot of the people, uh, First uh, John says, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Without the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, we end up under the sway of the spirit of the world. And so that's why they seem to be fighting for the wrong side, even though they don't know they're doing it, right? And so what I want you to see here, though, is that it is his word that actually divides. And we see this in Hebrews 4, verse 12, where he says, my word is living and active and sharper than, two -edged, than a two-edged sword, uh, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, my word goes into the heart and it divides between soul and spirit. Let me put it this way. All of us, who believe in Jesus, have received the Spirit of God, have the kingdom of God in us. What all of us have also discovered is there's some world in there too, isn't there? You know what the Word of God does? It goes in and it starts dividing out the world in us, doesn't it? And we go, oh, there's conflict. There's conflict in me. The Word of God is exposing conflict internally in my heart. Because I got some word of God in there, and I've got some world in there, and I have to make a decision now, don't I? Because the word of God has divided. It works micro and macro. The word of God divides in me. The word of God divides in the earth. And so here's what happens. What we see is as the word of God comes, um, people receive it, or people get enraged, all right? You want to you wanna test this? Go into Walmart sometime. Just go by the cash register. There were lots of people around. Just stand there and real loud go, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And you'll see two things happen. You'll see smiles, and you'll be able to tell the ones who know where that passage came from. And you'll see people look like you like you're crazy. Right? Because it'll just... You want to divide something? Just go do that. The Word of God divides. Here's what it does. We saw in John 15, 3, that the Word of God cleanses us. You are already clean because of the Word I've spoken to you. The moment we receive the Word, it cleanses us. When I find that internal conflict in me, when the Word goes into me and it divides, and I choose the Word of God over the world that I see in me, it begins to cleanse me, Right? But we saw in John 15 that the word of God infuriates the world. They will hate you because they hated me. We, remember we talked about lawlessness in Psalm 2? Remember Psalm 2, first three verses? The nations rage. They meditate on one thing. How do we get out from under God and his son and their rules? They, they make us furious. They make us rage. and We've got to come out from under them. And so we have to understand this, that anytime we're not just talking about Scripture and people are going, well, that's okay. Well, it's a good principle. I don't believe in Jesus, but it's a good principle. No, no. It's living and powerful, and it divides. And there will be a real strong tendency to receive it or rage. Not everyone quite goes right to rage, but you get my point. Okay? 
And so we have to understand that the Word does this, especially uh, if we're going to walk around wielding it. Amen? All right. All right, I think we're going to make it. Verses 15 and 16. I'm going to step on toes now. Uh, I love you. You can argue with me later. Here we go. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Again, this is Jesus, not Tony. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. If you've ever wondered where that saying comes, be in the world but not of the world, that's where it comes from. Uh, Jesus is saying, uh, they're not of the world, I'm not of the world. We're not to be of the world. But he also prays specifically, for God's sake, don't take them out of the world. I'm leaving. Somebody's got to stay here and be a witness. (laughs) Right? That's the job. Guys, that's the job. So, all right, get your toes ready. We are not going to be suddenly rescued from tribulation. It's not going to happen. There you go. Now, I don't have time to teach through Revelation or 2 Thessalonians 2. I've done it in the past. They're on, you know, online, I think. You can find them or you can call the office and find them. Uh, I'll do it again sometime in the future. Uh, it's, the scriptures seem very clear to me on this. I don't have time to get into them now, but I'm just dealing with this passage, which also seems very clear. God, I don't want you to take them out of the world. They're supposed to be here and be witnesses. We are not being rescued from tribulation. In fact, John 16, says, in the world you will have tribulation. tribulation. Put that on your refrigerator. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Goes with the job. Because the world hates Jesus, hates the word, and will hate you if you express Jesus in the word. Just goes with the job. Just buck up and quit hoping that you're going to miss it all. Now, So he's saying in verse 15 and 16 is that they are kept in the world. They're not to be of the world, but they're kept in the world as witnesses of his love. This is why Jesus at the end of chapter 13 said, I give you a new command. Love as I've loved you, right? Now, they haven't yet seen the greatest demonstration of his love, have they? Huh, what's it mean to love Ah, I bet their disciples are probably sitting around dinner. I wonder what it means to love like Jesus loves. And the next thing they see is Jesus on the cross. Oh, that kind of love. That, that looks painful. Is that what we're called to or not? I think that's what Jesus meant in Matthew 16 when he said, if anyone desires to come after me to be my disciple, he's going to have to take up his cross and follow me. He died himself. Right Now, most of us aren't going to do that on a cross. We're going to do that in much smaller ways. But the principle is still there. So we're here to be witnesses of his love in the midst of a hostile world. It's the job description. It's what his disciples do. We just need to embrace that. All right? Okay. I'm done stepping on toes. You can relax now. Probably. Maybe not. We'll see. Verse 17. Uh, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I love that passage. So simple, so profound. Set them apart. The word sanctified means holy or set apart. So set them apart by your truth. And by the way, your word is truth. So again, we're back to what? Receiving his word and obeying it. It's just that simple. So obedience to his word or to the truth is what sets us apart right? That's why the church looks so different than the world, right? Should. Where the church and the world don't look that different, we may have an obedience problem. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we won't, you know, some things we're going to look the same just because we're human. But in terms of the important things, the way we treat people, stuff like that, we should look different because we're obeying his word. It is what sets us apart, that we're the people in the earth 
that demonstrate that the Word of God works by doing it, right? Um, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice so that we can prove the acceptable will of God, so we can prove His Word works. That's what that's saying. Is just Watch me. I'm going to do the Word. You watch what happens in my life and see if it works, right? And so that's what he's saying uh, to do here. Obedience is what sets us apart. It also is what protects us. The other passage I said is probably the most important passage in the Bible, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount talking about building houses on sand or on rock, right? He says, if you build on the rock, uh, you're good to go when the storm comes, and the storm will come. If you build on the sand, your house is going to get ruined. Now, he's not talking about natural houses. He's talking about spiritual houses, all right? You can have, uh, you can build on the rock even if, you know, Hurricane Ian took your house out. You can still be on the rock. You can have your house perfectly fine and be falling apart because he's talking about spiritual houses. Do you remember what he said was the difference between who built on the rock and who built on the sand? Whoever has my word and does it is like one who built on the rock. Whoever hears my word and doesn't do it is like, and he just got done preaching a three-chapter sermon. So he's basically ending his sermon with, if you do this, your life's going to be real stable. If you don't do this, uh, get ready for a lot of stuff falling apart. It's just obedience. It's what sets us apart, and it's what protects us. The other way it protects us, we see in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. That's that end-time passage uh, where it's talking about the Antichrist, and it says that many are deceived because they did not receive a love of the truth. What do his disciples receive? His word. His word is truth. So guys, you will either go, oh, it's hard, but I love truth, so I'm going to do it. Or you will open yourself up to deception. The moment we begin to say, I really don't know that I want to receive God's word on this issue in my life. Satan goes, great, I've got some other words that you might be willing to receive. Let me just look through my book of deception. It's a large book. I've had 6,000 years to practice. Yeah? All right. So again, uh, we're just hammering the importance of the word here. Verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. In the same way the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus sent the disciples into the world, and ultimately us through them, right? So Jesus was sent in the authority of his family as the Son of God. That means if we are sent in the same way, we are sent in the same Trinitarian familial authority as Jesus. You have been sent into the world. The disciples were sent into the world in the same way Jesus was sent into the world, with all the authority Jesus had, with all the access to the Father that Jesus had. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going, and I'm, you're staying here, and the world's going to hate you, but I'm giving you everything I had to do my ministry, full access to the Trinity. Right? So we've been sent in this full Trinitarian authority. That's why Jesus was training them in John 13. Again, I'm going to review John 13 real quick. John 13 is uh, the Last Supper, and he washes the disciples' feet. And then he gets up, and he says, I've done this as an example because I want you to learn to serve one another. It's really important that you learn to serve. And then he goes on, and he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment at the end of John 13. I want you not just to love one another as yourself, but I want you to love one another as I have loved you. We're going up a notch. Love like Jesus, not like Tony. Okay? So I want you to learn to serve, and I want you to learn to love. Why? Because in 1320, he starts hinting at, I'm, I'm leaving, and I'm sending you out in my place. And so as sent ones, sent in the same authority as Jesus, we have to come in the same spirit service and love, right? And so there we are. So Jesus is hitting all these things as he wraps up his prayer. 
And then in verse 19, he says, Now for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Again, we are set apart by the truth. Now Jesus, why Jesus has never sinned and has never not known truth, how does he sanctify himself? What's one thing he's going to do that no one else can do? Go to the cross. We saw that in John 17, verse 1. We also saw that he talked about the glory of the cross. We talked about that last time we spoke, the glory of the cross. He refers to it as he starts John 17, this prayer. He refers to it in John 13, right at the end, as he gets into his instruction for his disciples, the glory of the cross. I'm going to glorify the Father now. I'm going to return to glory. I'm going to the glory of the cross. And so this is the way Jesus was set apart. He was set apart to the cross. That was his cross. We each get a different one as disciples. We take up our cross and follow him. But he literally took the cross. The cross, remember we talked about the glory of the cross in Revelation 5. How Jesus is the only one found worthy to open the seals and to, and to, uh, to take the scroll uh, that releases justice in the earth. And he was found worthy because he purchased men with his own blood. Right? And so the glory of the cross. Jesus was set apart to the cross. I love Philippians 2.8 says that he was obedient. That he was God, but he humbled himself as a man. And became obedient even to the point of the cross. Even to death on the cross. Right? So that was his obedience. And we have our own obedience. Amen? And so he's referring here when he says, I, I sanctify myself, what he's getting ready to do on the cross. And again, this is a model for us because we're called to take up our cross and follow him. Right? And it's not just a model for us that there will be suffering or there will be dying to ourselves as we follow Jesus, it is a model for us that there's glory in the cross, that there's glory in the suffering for Jesus. Now, there's not glory in just suffering for being dumb. Peter talks about that. There's glory in suffering for Christ. There's glory. And so uh, it's a reminder that uh, there's a reward. There's glory. Amen? Okay, good review. Let me sum up, because I want to make sure we see how simple this really is. And the summary is this, and, uh, and then I, I, I uh, want to tell you what I want to do at the end here, because, um, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. The summary is this. It's his name, and it's his word. Two things, that simple. We are set apart, we are sanctified in the midst of a hating world, we're not just set apart to be blessed. That goes, there's blessing, but we're set apart in the midst of a hating world by his name and by his word. As adopted sons through faith in that name. I want to remind you what uh, Luke says in Acts 4. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Amen. Jesus is it. He is the way, the truth, the life, the door. No other way. No other name. I thought about listing names, but it's just a long list and none of them work. No name can save you but Jesus. Period. Right? And so we are adopted sons, accepted in the beloved, brought into the Trinitarian unity through faith in His name. And we are witnesses in a hostile earth through our loving obedience to his word. We just accept that he is the one sent from God, the son of God. And as we obey his word, we'll be witnesses in the earth. That's it. That's the job. Are you up for it? All right. Here's how I want to end. Uh, because I wasn't sure. I was praying about, I always am asking God, you want to do anything interesting at the end? And I didn't have anything. Uh, and so I thought, well, I'll just see what happens when I get there. And here we are. Uh, but something happened in worship. Worship was really good, wasn't it? So uh, I'm going I'm to pick on Ellie and Liel. Sorry. Uh, Ellie and Liel came up 
to kneel down at the front, and, and I don't know what they were doing. They were up here. I assume it was something with God. And uh, there were other people up front, but when they came up, there was something on it that drew my attention, and I went, okay, God, what's up? And I had this sense uh, that God, uh, and so is Liel? Just Ellie's here. Okay, you'll have to tell Liel. Um, that God was enjoying their mindset. And I went, huh. Well, so probably you're thinking what I was thinking. What mindset is that? <laughs> and here's what I felt like God showed me. That a lot of his church sees his word as an obligation. Here's a book full of things I have to do. And what he enjoyed about their mindset, that they had a different mindset, and we can change our mindset, was uh, they see it as a book of opportunity. Here's things I can do. Here's what I could be. And, and that challenged me. I go, I don't want to see your book as obligation. Oh, I got to be better. Oh, I got to do these things. What a mindset. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can be. I can be more loving than I am. I can be awesome. I could do awesome things. This book unlocks awesomeness in me. Are you with me? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there. And I don't think God wants to see this as an obligation. I think He wants us to see this as an opportunity to be awesome. So, who wants to be awesome? <laughs> right. Well, we're about out of time, so I think I'm just going to pray. And let's just take a couple minutes to wait on God. Lord, I, I just want to tell you, I crave that mindset. I, I know that I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I know that I've received your word. I know that probably most everyone in here has done those two things also. But Lord, I, I don't know that I've fully appreciated what you've made open for us. And Lord, I want a mindset that sees your word as opportunity. Lord, I want uh, to see change uh, not as obligation, but as, as joyful growth into uh, your son. <laughs> Lord, we ask for your heart. We ask for your excitement over the potential that you see in us. It's amazing. Lord, it's amazing that you can make us awesome. But Lord, it is, it's you. It's your spirit. It's your grace. <laughs> Lord, I pray right now for everyone here, you would touch our hearts with the desire, with the sense of opportunity that is before us to be what you've called us to be. We're both in, in our character and in gifting, in all those things. Lord, I get so excited of thinking about what your church might look like when we really are doing this, when we really are embracing the unity that is in Jesus. Lord, make your church awesome in the earth. Make your bride a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. Lord, we just pray you would uh, give us vision for what you have, for the awesome you see, for what makes your heart so enraptured with your bride. Hmm.